Hi, this is The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Annabelle Bly. And me, Will DeFratis. As usual, we'll be digging into some of the cool research going on in universities to bring you interesting insights and stories from the world of academia. With the nights closing in on us here in the Northern Hemisphere and Halloween just around the corner, we decided to dedicate this episode to the theme of darkness. We'll ask whether nightlife can survive and thrive in the modern city. We'll get our telescopes out and hunt for some dark matter. And we'll take a look at the lighter side of the dark web. But before all that, we hone in on October 31st. It's perhaps the one day of the year when the ghosts and ghouls from our favourite horror films escape our TV sets and are free to walk the streets among us. So to find out more about this spooky time of year, our colleague Holly Squire put on her favourite witch's hat and met a horror expert in her local graveyard. We all know that horror films and Halloween go together like a witch and a broomstick. But what is it about scary movies that makes people actually want to watch them? To find out, I caught up with Alison Pierce, a lecturer at York University and expert in horror films. And what better place for us to meet than in a graveyard? Well, I'm here at York Cemetery and it's a sunny autumnal afternoon but there's a bit of a chill in the air and I have to say it actually feels pretty sinister. It's very quiet aside from the noise of our footsteps and the trees blowing in the breeze along with the odd bird call, making it not hard to see why graveyards are the setting for so many good horror films. But beyond the graveyard or the spooky setting, what are the other key ingredients for a good horror film? First of all, the setting. So that would be the house. Ideally, it's an old house, it's a decrepit house, it's the house in the haunting, it's the Amityville Horror House. This is a place where past misdeeds have happened, terrible things have happened and they've left their imprint on the house, or beneath the house if it's poltergeist. So we've got bad vibes. Yeah, so there are bad vibes going on. So it could be the Indian burial ground, it could be the murder of the wife, any number of things. So you've got a house where terrible things have happened. Usually then a stranger is brought to the house in some capacity. Even in something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's the girl who stumbles into the house where the bad things happen. Um, The fourth thing would be in the house there is a place that's called the Terrible Place. Um, The Terrible Place is a concept developed by Carol Clover, an academic. It's usually the cellar. There's one place in the house where you are screaming at usually the girl who's turned up to never go. You must never go into the cellar. The cellar is where the terrible things happen. In the horror film, it's usually the cellar. Never go in the cellar. This is the root of all evil. This is a bad place. And for the fifth thing, I guess you need a clear resolution at the end, usually an upbeat one. Um, horror really puts its audiences through its paces. It wants to frighten us. It wants us to feel emotionally drained. And part of that catharsis is at the end saying, but it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. So you really need that moment at the end that whatever the landscape is, however things have changed, whatever trauma is, there is an inkling that things are going to be okay. Um, Kind of one of the exceptions to this is Carrie, which is uh, the original which is a really tragic, sad horror story about a girl who's really victimised and bullied. And it kind of finishes in a really sad note with 
she appears to be burnt to death, her evil mother's burnt to death, the school's burnt down, everybody's burnt to death. And then right at the end, you've got this lovely kind of dreamy sequence with the girl at school who felt sorry for her. She's recovered, oh, she's safe, the bloody prom, it's all okay. And then she goes to visit Carrie's grave and right at the end, Carrie's hand shoots up through and everybody jumps out of their skins. And just when you said that, the sun went behind the clouds. Yeah. It's actually feeling quite eerie here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you see, I'm good at this. Um, and so, but that's quite rare. It's quite rare to have a jump moment at the end of the film. Usually you have some sense that we've put you through the ringer, but now everything's going to be okay. Typically that might be um, the girl has hitched, escaped from the awful house and has hitchhiked and got in a car and she's driving away into the distance or they've escaped from the cave or something like that and there's some sense that things are going to be alright and that's important for soothing the audience at the end. Alison explains that one of the big reasons horror films are so popular is that people actually enjoy being scared. Alison reckons it's because it helps them to sort of disconnect with reality and lets them experience something sinister but in a controlled environment. This is what she calls a safe space. Typically in a horror film, it might be an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation. That tends to be what happens. And by following them and following them in extreme moments of peril, you're taken out of yourself and you're placed fully in that other world. And it's playing on very primal emotions, so it's easy to get really swept up and be taken out of yourself. It's about having a safe space where you can experience moments that are maybe frightening to you, that you maybe have feelings of dread or terror about. But at the end of the film, 90%, 95% of horror films, there's some kind of restorative ending. So the bad guy or the monster is vanquished and things return to normal. So you have that catharsis, you have the moment to explore these feelings of unease and terror, difficult situations, frightening moments, and know at the end that everything's going to be okay. So it's kind of a way of going through and experiencing fear yourself without yeah. actually having to do it. A safe way of doing it, a safe way of doing it. And I think some people are just more tuned in to having those emotions, the feelings of adrenaline or excitement. Well, now we know why people like to watch horror films. But what about the characters in them? From werewolves to witches, ghouls to ghosts, it seems not everything covered in horror can be totally separated into fact and fiction. And with Halloween just round the corner, what better time to delve into the history of witchcraft and witch hunts? This idea that witches gathered to worship the devil and very strongly associated with that is the idea that they flew to these witches gatherings magically and that's where we get our idea of the witch's broomstick. That's Alison Rowlands, professor in European history at the University of Essex, an expert in all things witches. I guess nowadays we tend to think of these ideas as perhaps rather amusing or perhaps associated with children's stories or with Halloween or whatever but actually back in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, the, these ideas were taken very, very seriously by the authorities, by the church, by the state, and actually hundreds and hundreds of people were prosecuted for being witches and indeed executed as well. About forty to 80,000 people were actually executed for the supposed crime of witchcraft. So not only were people accused of crimes they probably didn't do, but they were also found guilty and then tortured and killed, often publicly. 
And the way the authorities went about doing these killings sounds pretty gruesome. In Europe and in Scotland, people were burned at the stake and that's, you know, a pretty horrific mode of execution. Most of them would have been strangled first. They're not being burned alive. If they've confessed to being witches or been tortured into confessing, they would have been strangled first. But even so, I think the sight of, you know, people that you might know, neighbours, being, being burned at the stake, it's a pretty horrific form of execution. And I think that would have had a big psychological impact as well. That might seem a long time ago, but the historical idea of witches continues to live on and still influences what we find frightening today. What happens after the end of the witch persecution, kind of along comes the Enlightenment, and people get a bit sort of embarrassed about a lot of what had gone on in this time of witch persecution. And so the witch increasingly gets relegated to the realms of children's literature. Where are the most images and stories of witchcraft and, and magical flying and witches today? Well, it's actually in children's literature. Um, you know, you think there's a vast range of children's books. I mean, I know I've read lots of them to my kids, you know, Winnie the Witch, Harry Potter. So we still have this really, really strong and powerful idea of a magical flight. It's just been taken out of the realms of religion and anxiety and, and legal prosecution and we see it much more in the, in the realms of children's literature. But I think that's kept this stereotype of the flying witch alive. So there you have it. Even Harry Potter couldn't escape the witch's spell. And just a reminder, if you're planning on watching any horror films this Halloween, remember, you are in your safe space. Nothing can hurt you. Can it? Well, I'm glad it was Holly bringing us that story. Even in the very safe space of our studio, the thought of watching a horror film gives me the shivers. Well, to, to save Annabelle's shivers, we're going to turn now from the horrors of Halloween to some magical and mysterious real-world science. Yep, next up, Will and I speak to an expert in dark matter. This stuff, if we can even call it stuff, makes up a good chunk of the universe. But you're genuinely more likely to see a real-life werewolf or goblin than reality's most mysterious ingredient. Evidence of this dark matter was first detected in the 1930s, and ever since, scientists have tried to figure out exactly what it is. We spoke to one of them, Jocelyn Monroe, a professor at Royal Holloway, University of London. So Jocelyn, what actually is dark matter? So dark matter, we know, makes up actually most of the matter in the universe. Almost five-sixths of the matter in the universe is, is dark matter, and it's called that because it doesn't interact with light, so we can't see it through telescopes. It doesn't emit light, it doesn't absorb light. However, we can see its gravitational interaction with objects that we can view through our telescopes. So we can see its, the effect of its gravity on the motions of stars and the motions of galaxies. And at this point, we know that all the particles we know and love that you know, particle physicists have been studying for 50 years make up less than 5% of the content of the universe. And that most of the matter in the universe is this new stuff, which is dark matter, and we don't know what it is and we don't know what its properties are, other than that it interacts gravitationally. Wow, so just 5% of the universe. Um, how yeah. was it that physicists began to realize that, that there was so much more out there? Well, the first kind of hints came in the 1930s. There was a famously difficult astrophysicist named Fritz Lucke at Caltech who made this measurement of uh, the velocities of the motions of galaxies in the coma cluster of galaxies. And what he found was that the speed at which the galaxies were moving implied that there was about a factor of 500 more mass interacting gravitationally than what Hubble had estimated for that cluster of galaxies based on observing and counting the number of stars through an optical telescope. And so this big factor of 500 difference hung around for a long time. 
until the late 1970s and early 1980s when a team of astronomers led by Vera Rubin made a big improvement in the precision of measurements of the rotation velocity of stars in spiral galaxies. So that's the speed at which the star is traveling around the center of the galaxy. And what you would predict from observing spiral galaxies through telescopes is that you know they're brightest in the middle, so most of the matter is probably in the middle, and then as you go out towards the edges, that there's less matter. And so using Newton's gravitation, you know, one would predict that the stars at the edges of the galaxy should be traveling slower than they are actually observed to travel. And so at this point, many, many measurements of rotation curves in, in lots of different galaxies have been made, and they all support the same conclusion, which is that the luminous part of the galaxy that we can see through telescopes is actually a very small fraction of the total. And this, the luminous bit is sitting inside of a giant halo of dark matter particles that extends out hundreds of kiloparsecs further than the luminous matter we can see. And is this um, stuff that you would sort of kind of bump into? You know, if you flew there in a in a spaceship, would you sort of feel, feel this dark matter? Well, it turns out that there are billions of dark matter particles, you know, going through us as we, you know, sit here chatting right now <laughs> that, are, that are gravitationally bound to the halo of our own galaxy. And we don't feel them because the interactions that dark matter particles have with the regular matter that we know about are very, very weak. And actually, my, my research is trying to measure the interactions of individual dark matter particles with argon atoms. So it, a very it's, sensitive detector underground. It's not just um, light that it doesn't interact with. It's kind of every everything in what, what we might describe as kind of regular matter in our sort of visible universe. Well, our great hope, maybe I should say my great hope, <laughs> I bet my career on the hope that dark matter does interact with regular matter, albeit very weakly. So there are lots of experiments that are searching for this kind of direct interaction, where a dark matter particle bumps into an atom and there's some interaction and some energy is transferred to that atom. And all of those experiments you know, have so far set upper limits. So we haven't observed conclusively that dark matter particles are interacting with ordinary matter. Um, but we live in hope. There are still theoretical models that predict that dark matter should have interactions with regular matter in a, a range that we would be able to measure in current and kind of near future experiments. Perhaps before we get into the kind of nitty gritty, maybe I could ask you, Jocelyn, like, what is behind that search? I think that, you know, that sense that we are in the middle of this, you know, huge mystery, which is also an incredible scientific opportunity, right? If I could have some part in finding out what most of the matter in the universe is made of, that would be amazing. And I think that that's what motivates most of the people who work in this kind of research. Mm -hmm. I think you also have to enjoy being, um, you know, doing experiments in a fairly extreme environment. So, so dark matter experiments are done in underground laboratories. Yeah, so the, um, the lab that you worked in in Canada, that, that was more than a mile underground, is that right? That's right, yeah. So Snow Lab, in, which is outside of Sudbury uh, in Ontario in Canada, is one of the world's deepest underground laboratories. And, you know, to get down there, you, you know, drive for, I don't know, 20 minutes outside of Sudbury to this active mine, and you, you know, change into your mining gear, and you wow. take a, a lift, essentially, down more than a mile underground, and then you, you know, hike through the mine to the lab, and then you spend essentially half an hour taking off all of your mining gear, taking a shower, putting on a clean room suit, to enter the laboratory facility where the entire facility underground in the middle of this big, dirty nickel mine 
is a class 10,000 clean room. I'm just kind of curious as to whether there's any kind of direct real world application to sort of knowing all this because you've sort of said a lot of uh, physicists looking for this have this sort of quest to kind of uncover the secrets of dark matter is it a bit like you know the sort of mountaineers who, who said why are you climbing Mount Everest and they said because it's there um, <laughs> is, is that what motivates you or, or will discovering more about dark matter tell us something basic about life on earth well I think I could give you two for instances I mean I think there's there's a really strong element of people deciding to work on this because it's such a big mystery. But I also think, you know, history has something to teach us here. So, you know, in, in 1898, when J.J. Thompson was, you know, studying the electrode in a catheter gray, you know, tube on his desk, he didn't know that, you know, understanding the quantum mechanics of electrons would have anything to do with building the transistor, you know, 50 years later, or that, you know, 70 years later, the transistor would completely change the way that all electronics work totally changed the way that people live their lives. You know, that that future is impossible to foresee. But all of that stemmed from, you know, his sort of desire to understand what are the quantum mechanical properties of these funny new particles called electrons. And I think dark matter has a similar kind of potential because there's so much of it out there. You know, we know that most of the matter in the universe is dark. And so surely it's good for something <laughs> if we can learn if we can learn more about its properties. I think it's very speculative. We don't know what dark matter's properties are. We don't know if it interacts with itself. In this model that has been put forward by Lisa Randall, dark matter has some very small self-interaction. And so in, in those kinds of models, not only would you have gravitational interactions of dark matter particles and collisions of dark matter particles, you also could have the, the parallel of nucleosynthesis. So just like we have a whole periodic table of, you know, of elements that are built out of protons and neutrons and electrons, well, in models of dark matter where there's some probability that they have self-interaction, you would have a similar process. You could have a whole dark periodic table of elements. You know, who knows? You could have, you know, dark carbon-based life forms for all we know. Um, so I think, you know, it's such an it's such a wide-open question. That's I I, I love the idea you just sort of mentioned of a possibility, almost of a kind of if you're saying there might be kind of dark carbon, for instance, and sort of dark life forms. Is this one thing that people are possibly exploring, perhaps you know, the theoretical idea that there might be a, a dark universe that is almost a sort of communication breakdown between the two, and you know, is is there somewhere out there a sort of a dark Jocelyn Monroe sort of speculating on the existence of um, a light universe? <laughs> it keeps you up at night, doesn't it? I mean, there might be, for all I know. So that you know, there are. Um, there, there are models, you know, they're called mirror universe models, where essentially there are entire parallel universes, and there's absolutely no interaction between them other than a few particle messengers. So, you know, the level of interaction between this dark sector and let's call it the light sector of, of particles we know and love, uh, the degree of interaction is completely unknown. So I guess, you know, it's possible that there's a dark Jocelyn Rose sitting out there somewhere speculating, but sadly we'll never know it unless she learns to communicate by gravitational radiation. I mean, because it's a sort of, not not quite a quirk, but it's a, a feature of our human existence that we, you know, we're made of carbon and we observe things through light. But if, if for instance, our chief sense was being incredibly sensitive to to gravity... Uh, are we basically limited here by the fact that we look at a visual world rather than... Absolutely. If you could put on your gravity glasses, you would see a completely different universe. Yeah. And I think that's what's so interesting about the 
you know, recent first observation of gravitational radiation by the LIGO experiment. Yeah. I mean, the reason that that's so incredible and people are so excited about it is that, you know, for the first time, we can view the universe in some way other than electromagnetic radiation. There's really, you know, in all of observational astronomy, that people detect photons of many different wavelengths. In the last five years, for the first time, people have detected neutrinos that are coming from outside of our galaxy, which was, was an incredibly big discovery. And then this year, you know, we can finally have the first hint that we can detect gravitational radiation. And I mean, this is an enormous, enormous change in the way that we can study the universe. Basically, the LIGO instrument is the beginning of having gravity glasses, where we can see the universe through this completely different filter. I mean, if I had to predict, you know, at the end of my scientific career, <laughs> will, will, you know, the state of particle physics and cosmology look anything like it does today? I mean, I would say no. You know, the, I think one of the big reasons why I got involved in dark matter is because this discovery that you know most of the content in the universe is dark happened during my scientific lifetime. You know, that measurement came out from the WMAP experiment when I was in college. I remember going to a colloquium as a physics major and seeing that result presented, and it was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that observing the universe through gravitational radiation, through neutrinos, have similar potential to completely change our understanding of our place in the universe and what the universe looks like and what the content of the universe is. You know, I think 20 years from now, we could be in a very different place, which is great. That was Jocelyn Monroe, Professor of Physics and Dark Matter Hunter at Royal Holloway University of London. We turn now to a story that's a lot closer to home for us here at the Conversation HQ in London. Both Annabelle and I are native Londoners and we've seen numerous changes to the city over the years, not least in terms of its nightlife. Take these couple of important and seemingly contradictory events from the past month or two. First, London finally got 24-hour tube train services. However, this happened just as the famed nightclub Fabric was being shut down, after 17 years as a stalwart of the capital's clubbing scene. Fabric is just one of many famous clubs that have closed in the past few years. Here's one way to think about this change. When I was a student, after a night out at one of hundreds of clubs, I'd be faced with a terrible once-an-hour night bus back home. Now, I can catch a 24-hour tube directly home from a dwindling selection of identikit bars. Many people are worried London's nighttime economy means sanitised culture. Well, from how people let their hair down at the weekend to those pulling the night shifts to make it all happen, Michael Parker takes a look at the ever-changing world of the city at night. Despite breathless talk about London being a 24-hour city, the capital has in fact lost half its nightclubs since 2008, and it still seems as difficult as ever to find a drink after 11 o'clock at night. It's enough to make you think there's an orchestrated effort to regulate nightlife out of existence. Or is it instead that we are seeing fundamental changes in what we choose to do after dark? It's certainly true that the authorities often approach nightlife as a problem to be solved, which seems strange considering the nighttime economy is worth 66 billion a year, contributes 6% to UK GDP, and employs 3 million people. We asked Marion Roberts, Professor of Urban Design at the University of Westminster, why, given its importance, there seems to be such a punitive approach towards the people that come out at night. Well, there's all sorts of reasons. There's the sort of cultural reason of thinking that things that happen at night are somehow 
dangerous or, you know, not to be allowed and transgressive. And of course, that is part of the allure of certain nighttime activities. Um, and there's also some very practical reasons that British towns and cities haven't been set up for um, an extensive nighttime activities. So the transport systems aren't there. Our um, licensing laws were set up so that um, we closed down between 11 and midnight. Um, there have been uh, lots of problems with alcohol, some with drugs, mm -hmm. and also in places where there is a residential population. And there's been a move in urban policy to try and, well, to attract people back to living in town centres. And obviously there's clashes mm -hmm. between lots of people walking around the streets at night and the desire of residents to have a good night's sleep. This attitude towards revellers is hardly new. Adam Smith, honorary research fellow at Sheffield University and a lecturer at York St John, studies the 18th century, which arguably is the period that marks not only the birth of recognisable modernity, but the birth of clubbing. And I think there's lots of historical reasons for that. I think a main one is oil-burning street lamps, which creates a 24-hour consumer society. So people don't have to go home when it gets dark and they can continue to do things. And often what they'd like to do is, is buy things so you can shop later, but you can also stay out later. You can stay out drinking later. You could you know, flirt into the early hours a little bit more. That sounds pretty familiar so far. If clubbing means going out in the evening to a place where you have to be admitted, then, yeah, that's definitely happening in the 18th century. You've got gentlemen's clubs, you've got places like um, the Athenium in Liverpool, which is a, a club which survives to this day, so you, and they've kept it pretty much as it was in the 18th century, and you had to be admitted to get in. If it's gathering with large numbers of other people late at night, many of whom are from the opposite sex, and having a good drink and a bit of a, a flirt, then you've got assembly rooms. There's a really big assembly room in York. I think it's actually an Italian restaurant now. But, but that was a place where people could go to spend time with each other and meet strangers and meet new people late at night. Gathering with members of the opposite sex late at night? It shouldn't be allowed, I tell you. I can already hear the moral indignation echoing down through the centuries. Tory poets of the early 18th century, Swift and Gay, they got a lot of material out of this. There's a poem called Trivia that came out in 1712, and it's got one of my favourite 18th century couplets, which which goes, um, Now is the time that rakes and their revels keep kindlers of riot, enemy of sleep. Mm -hmm. And that kind of juxtaposes those who go to bed at a decent time and those who stay out at night, those libertines who are the enemies of sleep and those who are at home don't know what they're getting up to, don't know if, you know, if they're being moral, if they're being virtuous, or, or if they're doing something else. Sounds then as if the moral majority have been complaining for just about as long as there's been something for them to complain about. Coming back to the 21st century, in truth this picture of nightlife as drinking and dancing and rowdiness until the early morning just isn't that accurate. With 10% of UK employees pulling a night shift, they're not partying, they're at work. An urban geographer at Newcastle University, Rob Shaw spent time hearing stories from the taxi drivers and street cleaners whose work keeps the night economy ticking over. One of the things that you find working with people who inhabit the city at night is that it's a much safer place than we tend to think. So it's not really a space of hedonism or um, certainly of violence and 
the kind of repeated thing you'll hear from whether it's the police, uh, bar staff, fast food retailers, all these people who are out there in the city at night is that yes, there are problems, but it's no, it's not the kind of wild west that uh, that some people might think it is. I think people talk to each other more at night. I think because I mean there's fewer people about, and so you're more likely to speak to to someone. I think it's an effect as well of of not being able to see uh, quite as far away. You can't quite tell who people are um, until they're very close to you. So you're more likely to engage in conversation, to to find out something about them, to interact with each other. The Young Foundation did some research in 2011, and they found that actually the biggest, what we call the nighttime economy, is only the third largest industry in cities at night. It's actually healthcare, perhaps unsurprisingly, which employs more people during the night, uh, and then manufacturing. And only then do we get to the hotel industry and bars and restaurants and nightclubs. So to equate the city at night just with sort of alcohol and drinking it might be the most visible if you show up here in newcastle in the big market at two o'clock that's what you'll see it's very striking but it's certainly not the totality of what's going on at all of course drinking and clubbing only really appeals to a small largely youthful fraction of the night going public but for all the attention it is paid by the licensing authorities, in fact, light clubs as we know them only really emerged fairly recently in the 1980s and 90s. Rob Shaw explains. The, the nightclubs that we now know come out of the alcohol industry and cities responding to the rise of ecstasy and illegal raves and producing new products like Alka Pops and then bottled beers that would kind of appeal to a younger audience, to people who um, were wanting to dance whilst drinking. You know, while we have seen a reduction in the number of nightclubs in Britain, again, looking at some of the numbers, there's still 1,700 uh, across the country, which to me still seems like quite a lot. Um, that's down. But what I thought was interesting is that at the same time, we've seen this rise in um, different types of alcohol consumption, so craft beer and craft breweries. And again, looking at that, there's now 1,400 breweries. So this is as of 2015. And I thought, well, they, you know, it seems that those two numbers are converging and we could get to a point pretty soon where actually more people are making their own beer. There are more breweries than there are nightclubs. And that, to me, suggests a changing trend in how we're socialising, how we're drinking and where we're going, perhaps as much as this sort of um, story of, of nighttime cities disappearing. Perhaps with so much having changed in the last few decades, nightclubs are dying rather than being killed off. After all, a lot of what they have to offer can now be found elsewhere. There's been a whole range of reasons cited, but one of the ideas is that people used to meet in nightclubs to, to have casual sex. They used to meet to have one-night stands. And you don't need to do that anymore. I mean, if you look at a nightclub, it's a particularly inefficient way of meeting people. It's noisy, um, you know, nothing about the people there. Everyone is either drunk or... Um, dressed up, made up to look as good as they can, whereas actually with some of these dating apps, you can filter out all the people you're not interested in first, so you don't have to spend your whole night talking to a bunch of people you don't want to talk to. There's also the sense that a lot of what nightclubs offer can be done at home now. People can stream music uh, much more easily, so if you want to have a, a house party, get together with friends, you can do that much more easily at home, much more cheaply than uh, you can do in nightclubs. So, we have a situation where our authorities are set up to impose stringent restrictions on one kind of nightlife while paying little attention to all the other things nightlife could be. This should concern us because alongside work, it's a city's nightlife, it's atmosphere that draws in people. 
Cities are where people come together to meet and create. A vibrant nightlife is a marker of a mature cosmopolitan city, and any measures that might strangle that element of the city will inevitably have consequences on others. Take, for example, the strict lockout laws in Sydney, Australia. This has had quite a devastating effect. So the idea is that clubs can still stay open till two or three o'clock in the morning, but you can't go into them after one o'clock. So, the, you know, the idea is that people aren't moving from bar to bar and out on the streets when they might come into conflict with each other. But in practice, what it's done is completely sort of destroyed the nighttime industries that are there. So I, I think there's good evidence for not applying this uh, overly strict regime. It sounds like what's needed is to put all these threads together and start developing new activities for cities after dark. And as it happens, new Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has announced he will appoint a night czar, someone to ensure that the opportunities to let your hair down, as well as those livelihoods that depend on the nighttime economy, aren't swept aside. Here's Marion Roberts again. One of the projects we did some years ago was also um, focus groups looking at what people might want from nightlife. And one of the issues is that a lot of it is based around either eating out or live performance or a sort of party atmosphere, which is very loud. And I think what people also want is just human contact. Mm -hmm. And so one of the themes that came up was a quiet place to sit and talk and to chill out. And that's one of the things that's missing from our nightlife. There's a huge opportunity now, especially with the night tube, to encourage a much wider range of activities beyond the typically boozy ones Brits are renowned for. Marion's research turned up suggestions such as late-night markets, jazz concerts, ice cream parlours, skating rinks, small city festivals, late opening museums and galleries, the, the kinds of activities that appeal to people young and old. And spaces that encourage people to come out after dark and take back the night by just hanging out, weather permitting, of course. So, Sadiq, here are some suggestions. I think there's an opportunity to um, develop the creative and cultural side of London and, you know, look after music venues, try and, you know, expand the experimental side of London's nightlife. Things like the galleries opening later, the major galleries, that's been, uh, as far as I can see, a success and there must be opportunities to do that more. And um, also encouraging the local boroughs, obviously it's up to the local councils, but with the night tube coming in, it'll be much more possible for people who live, say, in inner suburbs to go outwards, maybe to new centres where maybe there's cheaper property prices, there's more opportunities for entrepreneurs to experiment so I'm hoping that a new nightmare will encourage experimentation and encourage the boroughs to experiment and will also um, encourage, you know, all the licensing authorities and the police authorities to help with that and not to see it as a threat. Ultimately, as tastes change and urban populations grow, there has to be a shift in what authorities are willing to encourage and what they are willing to permit. Because a true 24-hour city in the 21st century can't still be one that shuts at 11pm.
That was our colleague and clubbing connoisseur, Michael Parker. We switch now to another activity that often takes place under the cover of darkness, crime. And things are no different online. The dark web, as it's known, is famous for letting criminals operate in the virtual shadows. But is darkness always a cover for crime? And does the existence of a hidden part of the internet mean that everything that goes on there is illegal and should therefore be shut down? The conversation's Clint Witchells spoke to a computer security expert who sings the praises of this parallel part of the web and argues that it's not really all that dark after all. Most people have heard of the dark web, even if they've never visited it. It's a place where you go to buy a fake passport, hire a hitman or download a recipe for making crystal meth. It's a netherworld where hackers, hitmen and sexual deviants rub virtual shoulders. It's called the dark web because it's where dark things happen, in the shadows. Well, at least that's what I thought till I spoke to Stephen Murdoch, who researches information security at University College London. In a way, dark web is a bit of misnomer because it um, sounds very sinister. But what it actually is, is um, bits of the internet that you need special software for accessing. And the main reason that people do this rather than the normal internet is for better security. So they want to protect their privacy, they want to protect their security. And how big is the dark web compared with the visible web, if I can call it that? It's quite hard to estimate um, because of the privacy that is offered to the users. Um, but I think it's fair to say it's, it's much, much smaller. It's um, in the case of the Tor Onion services, which is the main use of the 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 dark web um it's of the order of millions of sites rather than billions of sites and and tor onion services is the the basic way for a person to connect with the dark web um it's by far the most dominant one there are other services um there's i2p there's gnunet but in terms of market share tor onion services is by far the dominant player uh, i mean what's the uh, metaphor specifically with an onion what, what what's behind the the layers so the, the the onion came from the original name of the research project from the naval research labs, which originated the, the basis of Tor. And the reason it's called onion routing is that as people send information into the Tor network, it's wrapped up into layers of encryption. And then as the message travels through the network, layers of encryption are removed or added so you get a sort of uh, onion looking thing if you were to associate the dark web with anything people will say things like lawless terrorists pedophiles uh, most talk about the dark web is about how we can shut it down or at least infiltrate it to keep an eye on all those criminals but is there an argument for keeping it as it is even treasuring it as a as something valuable to society so the vast majority of um Media coverage of the the dark web is the bad things that happen. So the the classic example is Silk Road, which was a, a website that was selling um, illegal drugs and other material, and um, that did get shut down. But there's really no reason to believe that that's actually representative of the usage. Um, again, it's hard to actually find out exactly um, how it's being used, but in terms of the the public usage, it's things like people browsing Facebook, um, whistleblowers, news outlets all use Onion services for their better security. And 
in terms of the illegal uses, which there certainly are, law enforcement seems to actually have been doing quite a good job at shutting them down. And I believe blogs are flourishing on the dark web. Why blogs in particular? Um, Oh, blogs are quite personal. And so it could be that people do want to protect their identity when they're um, producing blog material. So I, I know about two of those cases. So one was in Tunisia um, before the Arab Spring. One of the, the main movers in terms of the, the revolution was running a blog and he was using um, Tor Onion services in order to protect the blog from being attacked. Um, another blog I know of is in an, a company town. So this is a area in the US where almost everyone in a particular area works for a big company and this person was upset about the influence that this company have, had had and its commercial record um, but the, the blogger didn't want to come out using his or her own name because it would be quite likely that that person and the, the person's family would be subject to quite a difficult situation because of the dominance of the company and so that blogger used Onion Services in order to protect the identity but still be able to speak his or her mind. And Stephen, do you think that people who call for some bits of the dark web to be shut down have a point? Well, there's certainly bad things happening using Tor Onion Services. In fact, there have been a successive number of cases where law enforcement have shut down Tor Onion Services, which are producing illegal material, or at least illicit material. And so I can very much sympathise with the, the people who want to shut these things down. But this is a, a small proportion of the internet and it's a small proportion of the Tor Onion services. And actually, when people have done the comparison, the Onion services or well, Tor is no worse than the rest of the internet. So I think it's understandable that these websites will be shut down and law enforcement know how to do this. But that doesn't mean that everything else should be shut down and then lose all the beneficial aspects, like shutting down Facebook, um, shutting down The Guardian's whistleblowing website, for example. Um, that would be a, a very bad side effect. I think the, the, the dark web terminology um, is unhelpful in this way. It makes it sound more sinister than it really is. Thanks very much, Stephen. So it turns out, far from being malevolent, the dark web can also be a force for good. But this useful tool is under attack from serious adversaries and researchers are looking for ways to improve the security. In the meantime, we're likely to keep on hearing mainly about the shadowy illegal side of the dark web. So perhaps those who defend it as an important secure online space should make their case more loudly. Our colleague Clint Witchell's there learning about the lighter side of the dark web. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill on Darkness. We'll be back next month when we will suspend reality and explore the theme of beliefs. Feel free to email in any ideas over to podcast at theconversation.com. A huge thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and myself, Annabelle Bly. The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye.